0: She looks like Irene. I love it. Hey, welcome to East Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor. And if this is your first time checking us out, you picked a great day to come. Uh, we are finishing off a series, four-part series. Uh, each, each week, we try and gather together to community of people who are trying to learn and live out the way and the teachings of Jesus. Um, And we teach in series, so we focus on a topic for a few weeks at a time until I get tired of talking about it or you get tired of hearing about it. And uh, so we've been doing three weeks leading up to this one. So if there's anything that I kind of jump to conclusions on or say, we've already talked about this. uh, There's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. You can follow up with that uh, if you want. But it's been a series. We we titled it uh, Greener Pastures, a series uh, on divorce breakups and overbearing moms. uh, And the idea being simply that These feel like really fertile grounds for the actual true topic of what we're talking about, which is a deep sense of hopelessness. Uh, It's a deep sense of uh, those periods in life where you've, uh, like we said a couple weeks ago, you don't have really any live options. It feels like, um, you know, I'm I'm like, I'm trying really hard. I'm trying to do good things. And I I, I really hope feels hollow. People would say, it's okay. You're going to do better. You, You know, there's always next time. There's always the next person. There's always the next thing. And you say, I can hear you saying that, but it feels so hollow, and I've kind of given up trying almost, like I understand that hope is kind of uh, positive or whatever, but like Life just doesn't work out as efficiently as you make it seem, and it does, it's not limited again to these three things. You know, it can expand into so much di- di- different things. It can long-term unemployment, right? It's just like this, like ah, just feeling of, of sickening. There's there's long-term disability. You want to be able to provide for your family, or you want to be able to do something. Just physically, um, it, it's not there. Or uh, some somebody helping somebody walking beside somebody as they're going through an addiction, and you think, why? You know, people just go. You can have hope. Just stop doing what you're doing. You're like, you don't understand. Like, it's out of my control, and hope feels a little bit hollow uh, in these situations. What it's not is, hey, if you're having a bad week, God can help. That's not what this series is about. It's about a much deeper sense of hopelessness or an overwhelming feeling of hopelessness in that way. And religion in general, and Christianity in particular, has always been perceived a lot of times as a refuge of hope. Uh, people see within organized religion a, a p- potential hope there. Maybe that's why people you come or you know try and check out church for the very first time. I've gone through all of these different places and, and nothing's really worked. So I'm trying to figure out God. And in tough times, people find religion and it helps them get through whatever it is that they're going through. And then the question becomes, as we dealt with in week two, is this actual? Like help? Is there any actual basis for that kind of hope, if, if if it's pursued in that way, or are we just once again meaning makers? Are we are, are we people who are trying to make sense and make meaning to make things work because we we need life to make sense to us and existence to make sense to us, and and so this has been a, a an, an ordeal. It's been something that's not been simple. It's been a really really difficult processing through the series, so kudos to you for sticking through it and showing up today to kind of hear how hopefully it all kind of ties together. Um, Last week, we introduced uh, a... a A text that Paul wrote to a church in a place called Corinth thousands of years ago, um, an early church trying to make sense of what it means to live in light of Jesus and and his death and resurrection for them, specifically being that close to the date and not knowing, not having a Bible to go off of, having nothing like that. All they know is they get together and they go, we know that this Jesus guy was was different. His death and resurrection means something for us, and we got to figure out what that means uh, for us as we kind of live out in Corinth in this way. There's a passage, one of the chapters, Paul wouldn't write in chapters, that would come along many years later, but in chapter 15... Uh, in your Bible at home, or if you brought it here, there's probably a subtext heading on it. Like the whoever kind of organized and edited your Bible tried to kind of make it easier for us to understand what comes next or what is all encompassed in these this section of pa- passages or paragraphs. That subheading is the resurrection of the dead, which is a difficult topic. Like let me let me to get this straight. Like I've just introduced this idea of we're going to be talking about hope and why you can have hope, and then I introduce resurrection of the dead um, because Paul. This is the direction that Paul kind of takes us in. It is not natural. I totally understand. It is far easier to talk about the XFL, is it going to work, the weather, all this kind of stuff, than to you for you to go to work tomorrow. And somebody goes, so what was the church yesterday? And you go, the resurrection of the dead. That does not play well. You do not make lots of friends doing that. So I I caution you with that. Just make up something else. But in this passage, Paul begins to talk about Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, and why We can have hope because of what that means for us. And and, and I I walked through the first few verses, and I I said we're going to finish this off, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to front load the the talk today with a little bit of text exposition, uh, and then at the very end, some really practical advice kind of moving forward of how does this play out and what does this look like uh, in our life. So... Uh, We stopped in verse 20 of chapter 15 uh, last week, Um, so it's going to be on the screens as well. If you want it on your phones, you can text the word notes to 97,000, and it sends you a text thing, gets you linked up, and each week you'll get a heads up on that. But um, here's what it says. Uh, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He he started off in in the very first part of chapter 15 by re uh, living out the dogma that they the handed out teachings and, and, and doctrine uh, that the church had kind of been a part of when he said, listen, when we get together, listen, what's the central thing that binds us? We believe. And then he, it almost begins like he, he's quoting this thing that we all had memorized, not we, us, but the, the, those people at that time. We believe that Jesus Christ died, that we, he was buried, that he was resurrected. And those are like, that's big kind of assumptions. I, he's using these as operating assumptions, I realize in a church like today, our church today, especially a church designed for people who don't typically like church, there may be a lot of people who go, I don't necessarily believe that to be the case, right? And and he doesn't go into kind of justifying proof of that actually happening. He just assumes that it does, right? So, um, and, and it was never meant to kind of be like that, the idea of did it actually happen isn't something that's going to be resolved in today's text. So I'm going to ask you to suspend judgment for those of you who are skeptical on whether or not this is true or not. Um, Instead, come back on Easter. We always talk about the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. That's what you want from me, so that's what we do every year, okay? So that's happening, but that's in April. Uh, For now, if we assume that that's true, so this is free past Sunday if you're not really a Christian, but if you are a Christian and that's kind of a central tenet of the faith. Um, then there's implications that are lived out because of this, and he's going to draw in some of those implications. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, and then he breaches back into like this Old Testament, and he and he, he pulls this word forward. He talks about first fruits. We don't speak a lot of uh, first fruits uh, in our day and age, but for them, it was like the very first. Uh, before you harvested uh, everything for your sake, before you got your cut, you took the best and the brightest. You took the best animal, the best looking carrots, the best looking onions, and you took them and you sacrificed them to God. You burned them. You literally ruined them, gave them away a- a to kind of prove to God, I don't need, I didn't make everything, everything else is a gift. That little perfect gift kind of um, sanctified or set apart or consecrated the rest of it, right? So in, in our day and age, um, we get taxes taken out. You don't do this. You don't. Write a check now to, to the tax man or whatever. It just kind of is taken out of your taxes, but it's it's out in front. You don't get the rest of it until you pay that part, right? Um, and it doesn't consecrate anything for you. There's no sacredness to your money anymore. But but that's the kind of idea of they, it's like it's first, it's primary, it's there's priority with this. He, so he's trying to say the Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The perfect one goes first, and it consecrates and sets apart the rest. For since death came through a man, that's the Adam and Eve story. You've heard this even if you didn't grow up in church. A man being Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. But this time it's Jesus. So Adam, Jesus, Adam, Jesus, contrasting this. For as in Adam all die, in other words, because we're like descendants of this this idea of of Adam or as an ideology, Adam as a person or whatever in Genesis, we all die. That's the track record for all of us, and the trajectory for all of us. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And this is his claim. This is where it gets unique. We can all agree with this, right? And we might not use these words. We definitely wouldn't use these words. But we we agree it's not, I'm not breaking any new ground by coming to you today and being like, hey, just quick awareness. You're going to die someday, right? And and, um, the best movies, the best books give you the sense of the uh, the futility of life, but yet make the most of our, our time. And yet Paul takes it and goes one step further, and he initiates something brand new. And he says, listen, so in Christ, all will be made alive. His statement is this. He's calling forward. He's going, listen, I think that God initiated something new through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's not enough to isolate it to, well, that's fine for Jesus. He was divine. That's great. And that's, I, I, I can understand this is what the Corinth was doing. This is what the church in Corinth was doing. I can get behind Jesus raising from the dead. After all, he was Jesus. I don't see myself in the same way. I don't think that there's a new pattern or precedent being set for me. And Paul is saying, listen, there's something new that was initiated. There's something new taking place in here that is gonna affect all of us. We know, we now know how the story, capital S, ends. We know how our story ends. Death doesn't have the final Word. But each in turn, uh, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, he's walking through a timeline for, the, for his readers and his audience, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, which is like these fancy words for him saying, listen, this is why we still die. There's an ongoing reality of death. The end has not come. As long as we're still dying, as long as that's still the end, that is the ultimate end, right? That's the worst thing that can happen to you. When, when, when we look at life, what's the what's the worst thing? That you go bankrupt? No, you can always get, kind of get back on your feet. What's the worst? that I get arrested for something terrible? Oh, it's bad. You're going to spend some time in jail. But the, the worst would be it, the, the, the death comes. Then all of that stuff, nobody comes after you in bankruptcy or comes after you for an unserved jail time when you're dead. That's the end. That's the ultimate loss. And Paul's going, but what if it's not? What if there is, what if death isn't the final word? What if that's part and parcel of what we're going through now, and it's an indicator that the end has not come, but there's something more, that there is a power of death currently being exercised in this world, and it seems like the end-all end-all, and it seems like the most powerful thing. No matter how much money you have, or how many people like you on Facebook, or how many, whatever you have going for you, or whatever car you drive or home you live in, Death has a hundred percent kind of like rate on everybody on mortality rates, right? Nobody escapes this. It doesn't matter how much your bank account shows. That's the power of death. But for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In other words, for him, there's coming a day when that too goes away, when the empty power of death is finally revealed for what it is, which is a shell of uh, of saying that it has all kinds of, it is the ultimate thing. And he goes, but what if it's not? But what if the power of it goes away when you realize that this life isn't all there is to this life? On the outside, it looks devastating, but it's an absolute Sham. And this is his argument. I, I, I tried to think through this in terms of analogies because I, I think better in terms of, okay, I, I think I kind of get it, but like put it in word pictures for me. So I came up with one this week that uh, I think you're going to really like, all right? Uh, and it's analogy, so it kind of, there's a point where it breaks down. I think you'll catch it. But um, the enemy, which in this case is death, is kind of like an, essentially a house squatter. Have you ever had, have you ever seen a house squatter? We had one, we had a, a couple living across, we, we live in Pasco. The house across the street from us was owned by this couple, family, whatever, and then they went through the bankruptcy process, lost the house, but stayed in because like the paperwork and all that kind of draws out, right? And we kind of had heard through the grapevine that some of this was going on and and, and it was fine, Every time we, but every time we looked over... Uh, the lights are on, and they're inside, and their cars are parked in the garage. So by all accounts, it looks like they live there, and they, by all accounts, it looks like they own the place. They received mail at this home. They mowed the lawn like once every 12 weeks. It looked like they were there, like they owned the home. Our kids would talk about them as if they were our neighbors, and we would say, yes. Yes, our neighbors, all the while, we know the truth about, well, I mean, it's kind of like this legal battle, but how do you explain that to a three-year-old? Well, they're not really our neighbors because they're going to be gone in just a few minutes because the bank's going to come in and put a notice on the door, right? But that that doesn't make sense for my three-year-old to know that. It doesn't matter. In the meantime, we just smile and say, yes, they're great. Isn't all their cars everywhere? Aren't they awesome? How many cars are there and how many people live in the home? What do you think, hon? Huh? Um so that that's like this it's like this sham thing it looks by all appearances like they own the house but they really don't because eventually a notice gets posted on the door and then they move on and i don't know how it all worked but um and then it sat empty for seven years and the yard went to crap and ruined our resale value and that's really again where the analogy breaks down i told you it would um so not all analogies are perfect but that's where it works for Paul, know his, his big takeaway with this idea of what if the resurrection piece is not just limited to Jesus, but what if it's an offering for us? Um, essentially, the reason that then we can have hope in the midst of hopeless circumstances and the reason that you're not lost in the, the, the waves of, of troubles and trials in life and, and have some firm, something firm to hold on to is that no thing can ultimately beat you. That there is always room for hope on two conditions. If Death doesn't have the last word, and if what we're doing now matters, and I know those are two really, really big ifs, and and I understand if you're like not ready to jump to those conclusions yet, I get it. I'm just telling you, I'm presenting to you the Christian philosophy for why we can have hope. You can either choose to accept it or reject it. I'm, but here's what it is: for Paul, we can do it because death doesn't have the final word for us, and how you're living your life now carries over on some sort of a process towards what we are becoming or what the new heaven, new earth, or what what our life looks like beyond this life, that what you're doing here matters. And that one's not as controversial because we kind of feel like I don't know what it means after I die, but I'm trying to live a decent enough life so that whatever it is, I've got a decent case to make, right? Uh, that I could point to something and be like, hey, he's a pretty good person, did some good things, gave some money away, treated people with respect, didn't post a lot of stuff on the internet that wasn't, you know, politics related, really nice guy, that kind of thing. Um, I think he deserves to get in or get a house, or I don't, I don't, we don't know. But whatever, we like the idea of a legacy. We like the idea that we're leaving something behind, you know, for us when we when we when we uh, pass on. We like the idea of taking care of our or being responsible with the climate that we have, so that our kids can have a, a, a just as good of a, of weather. Uh, this weather sucks. Maybe better weather. I'm, I wouldn't be fine. I'd be fine with a little bit warmer in the tri cities I'll just be honest with you. But not like smoking hot. But a little bit warmer, especially right now. But we, we want to leave it better than we found it. In, 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 in general in life. So we can kind of sign up for this idea, and, and Paul would say, yes, that's great, but that is really informed ultimately by what, or, or goes exponentially more important when you realize that death doesn't have the final word in this. The reason that that can be a firm idea is because we're expecting something. The idea of greener pastures is not some pie-in-the-sky ideal, but anticipation of a promise, but yet to actually be realized or actualized reality. I'll read that again because I kind of messed it up. The idea of greener pastures isn't some pie-in-the-sky ideal, but anticipation of a promised but yet-to-be-actualized reality. And if you've ever been engaged to be married, you know exactly what this feels like, right? There's a commitment there, there's a promise to be made, but it's not an, an actual yet-to-be-realized reality. And you would say, maybe you're in the audience, and you say, yes, that's how it's been for the past four years, and I'm threatening to go out and look for greener pastures if something doesn't change real soon. And that's totally understandable. I totally get that. And that's really where the big idea and the big issue comes in with promises. The problem with promises or the issue with promises is what am I supposed to do with the distance between what was promised and the actual arrival of that thing? This here's the promise, and then and then here's this like waiting period for this thing to happen, and then here's the actual arrival. And this is this is supposed to be this, and it, it feels like it's more because we've been conditioned, right? We buy something on Amazon; it says it's going to be here Friday. I, I, they get a call from me on Saturday, right? That's how this works because I'm so conditioned to be frustrated in the waiting period of, of these things. But what you do? What do you do when what's promised? which, as we covered, just to recap real quick, Paul is saying that death doesn't have the final word and what you do now matters, isn't verifiable in the here and the now. What do you do when the promise is, don't worry, death's not the end? That's really hard to prove. I mean, a couple people write a book about it once every five years or something, but you're like, I don't know, he was six. Are you sure he died in like saw heaven. That seems kind of weird. It seems like they want to write a book. You know what I mean? That's what it feels like a little bit, and I I understand that. Those two things are unverifiable, and even if you're not religious, you deal with something like this, because you can be like, well, that's not verifiable, so therefore it's out. Well, yeah, but except for the fact that you kind of deal with something like this in a different way. If you've ever written a will, if you've ever drafted a will, these are your instructions for what I want to do with my estate when I pass. That whole process for you is unverifiable. Now, you can get all kinds of reassurances from your lawyer. You can look into state laws that mandate due process to be followed, but you don't really, and you can never really know how it's gonna play out, apart from successfully faking your own death, which is highly not recommended because you might not like what you see, right? but you kind of live in this, like, I think I know what's going to happen. When I die, I think that my four kids are going to get about $650 each and a box of Topps uh, baseball cards from the early 1990s, and the lucky one gets the 89 with the King Griffey Jr. rookie card, but that's it. That's what happens with all of this. So there's the promise. There's the waiting period. What do we do with this? Now, I want to look speak real quickly about the difference. There's a what, do you, what does scripture kind of relate with this? Is there any sort of idea that comes out of this? And I know that Old Testament and the New Testament are very very different, right? You've got um, a, a, two thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament, one third essentially, not exactly, but is is a, a New Testament that one that's bigger is typically about um, a specific nation, the nation of Israel. The New Testament one's about the church. They typically deal with two different covenants. Um, There's, uh, in one, in the Old Testament, history moves really, really fast. They cover thousands and thousands of years. In the New Testament, it covers just like a handful of years. It's really, it kind of slows down in that way. But one of the congruities uh, that shows up is a God who offers his people a promise the entire Old Testament could be read as God making good on a promise to a guy. He, he calls out of a, a, a city called Ur, and he brings him out and he says, Listen, I'm going to ask you to trust me. You don't even know who I am. This is like nothing. And there's like this voice. Who, who knows how this works? But he says, Go out into the night, in the middle of the night, look up into the sky and see if you can count all the stars. And I'm going to make your descendants number the stars that you can't even begin to possibly count. And back then that was the big deal, like your legacy, your family, your, that, was, that was wealth, that was a sense of wholeness, that was a sense of everything as it is now. But um, it, it meant so much to have a, a legacy that goes beyond just you. You wanted to, to leave your name and, and uh, your DNA, they wouldn't say DNA, but your, your, your sense of self, you want that to kind of pass along to your descendants. And of course, when he died, he could look uh, uh, at what had taken place so far and count his number of descendants on a single finger, not just a single hand, but a single finger. It was one. So he goes out, and, he, and remember, he lives his entire life with this promise, I'll make him as numerous as the stars. He's like, did you mean the moon? Because there's one moon, and I got one kid. That's maybe what you meant. You just called it stars, and I misunderstood, or whatever. And yet, now we look at it, now from like the hindsight of now thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and we go, okay, Abraham is claimed as an ancestral father for Judaism, for Christianity, for Islam, you know, makes up 60% of the people in, in the world as they exist. We even write songs about it, right? You sang songs growing up in Sunday school, Father Abraham, I'm not going to sing it for you, but there's there's all kinds of like, we get the sense of this, and yet in his lifetime, in his In his ability to be like, you promised something, there's been a waiting period, nothing's really taken place as far as I can tell, and he died without really having any sort of awareness of a fulfillment coming with this. It's almost as as if this story is included, at least in part, to kind of prove or show or tell a story of a God who says to us, I've been known to make promises that don't match up to the experienced reality of the person who's been promised. Maybe even for their entire life. But since death isn't the final word, and again, that's a big if, but if that's true, then hope is never wasted. To which I always try and think through these things of somebody who's sitting there in, in your spot with arms crossed and like, you know, perception of Christianity and church and organized religion is typically negative, And you go, how convenient for you um, to promise something and be like, but you'll never see it. But don't worry, it's fine. Trust me, we got this, right? Like there's always if if I can't if if what I'm experiencing doesn't match up to like my current experience in reality or my expectations of your promise your promise my experience reality and there's lots of dissonance like these two things cannot be held together and you're saying trust me it'll work out in the end but you're probably gonna die you're you're not gonna see it but trust me you're like yeah what is that that's not what are, what are you what are you expecting of me oh, let's let's bring it close to home real quick. If our church finances appeared to be mismanaged, if the experienced reality of our finances was that I was installing a bowling alley in my office, but I was confident in telling you to hold out hope, don't worry, guys. It'll all make sense in the end. It's, it's okay. Don't worry. We're, I know it doesn't make sense right now, right? It's a really small office, but we're going to do some cool things. You can You can't wait. Trust me, it'll all work out in the end. You would rightfully have cause for concern. But that concern would vary based on how well you know me and how well you trusted me or how much you trusted me. Like if you're just getting to know me, like you came because of the mailer a few weeks ago and you're like, I don't really know him, I don't trust him at all. And then this gets brought up or this thing in the video and you go, and and I make a joke about it in a a talk, you go, I am not giving a single dollar heel until this all gets revealed and and, until things get cleared up because I I don't trust any, uh, yeah, I've learned my lesson in this. But there'd there'd be some of you who've been coming for a a little while now and it feels a little bit home and you've heard me and there's like a little bit of trust there. We've talked in the lobby, you've showed up for a Super Bowl party or something like that and you're like, ah, you know, I probably misheard him. That's probably what happened. Did he say bowling alley? I don't think he said bowling. I think he said something out. You give me the benefit of the doubt in that way. And then there's some of you. Who have been coming to this church? You helped us launch this thing. You drove trailers to Southridge High when we first started in there. You watched kids. You you know hauled stuff in and out. We set this thing up for nine years. We, we've we've had this sort of relationship, and there's a high. I've hopefully quote unquote earned a high level of trust with you, and there and it may be even to the point where you would say something like this. Well, I'm sure bowling helps with the sermon prep somehow. So just trust, right? And, and, and you would say, listen, this is how pastors use church money for personal jets, y'all. This is how this happens, right? Not this church, to be clear, right? Any staff member can use our jet. That's, how we, that's our line in the sand. It's not just me. Andrew can use it as well, our only other staff member. Um, all right. This reveals a truism that Moltman writes in his book that I, I've been using as kind of a, a launch point launch point for this series. Here's what he says the guarantee of the promises congruity with reality lies in the credibility and faithfulness of him who gives it. The guarantee, how do you know that this is actually going to happen? Because I, it, the congruity with reality, the, the contradiction with reality, the inability to be like, this is what it says, but like, God, this is what I'm seeing. I don't, I don't know how this works, lies in the credibility and the faithfulness of him who gives it. And if that feels a little too complicated, I dumbed it down for myself because I needed to be like, what is this actually saying in this way? So here's my interpretation of it. The more you trust, the longer you're willing to wait in spite of conflicting evidence. Now, that's by me, and no books written, which should be clear. I think that's clear for everybody. But the more you trust, the longer you're willing to wait, not just wait in the absence of anything showing up, but in spite of conflicting evidence in the other way. And that's really the issue, isn't it? Conflicting evidence, the contradiction of reality. For Paul, he's saying we can hope and the reason that we're still all dying, the reason that this is taking place is because God's sovereignty, his ability to, to or not his ability, his, the reality of him being in control of all of these things, not this isn't God out of hand for him, he still, is in, he still has his hand in everything, just hasn't been revealed yet. There's a trust involved in that, I get it. And it might contradict the reality of everybody you know has died, will die, including yourself, Someday that that's just because the end has not come yet, and we can hang on to this idea that it's not over in that way. There was a song that um, came out recently, a couple years ago now, probably by Lauren Daigle. Um, It was it's a Christian artist, Christian song, but it had some crossover because the message was just really, really good on some of the stations that you and I actually listen to. Um, And it says this: "You say I'm loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I'm weak. You say I'm held." when I'm falling short. It's her dealing with this contradiction of reality. I feel weak, yet you keep telling me that I'm strong. I feel broken, yet you keep telling me that I'm whole. I I, I say, I I feel nothing. I feel absence. I feel despondent. I feel whatever. And you say that I'm loved. How do I deal with this? What am I going to do in this meantime? So what does this then look like? I I, I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, this is that Paul would write into the Colossians church. This is the mystery of Christ, the hope of glory that's in in you. Um, Okay, well, what does that even mean, And, and what does it look like for me? How do I play this out, and what is it in our life? And this is the goal of why we come to church. Take these scriptures, let's figure out what he was actually saying to his original audience, and then kind of overlay that with our experiences in life and what we're going through. How do we live this thing out? What do we do with all of this? It looks like this, the responsible exercise of hope. I gave this away at the end of the talk last week, and I said I would come back to it and highlight it. With all of this in mind, with 1 Corinthians Fifteen, that chapter, that verse about the assumption of Jesus' death, resurrection, and how He did it, and it's not just Him; it's an offering of something new, of, of something that's coming, a, a new covenant that's being taught. That life, that, that, that life, that death doesn't have the last word. That life is more than just this life, and that what you're doing with your life now—how you forgive, how you love, how you choose um, uh, love over anger—and and and and. and uh, and positivity over bitterness and all that kind of stuff, it plays out and actually affects that. The responsible exercise of hope is accepting the suffering that is involved in the contradiction of reality. Accepting the suffering. This does suck. This divorce is wrecking me. Like, I'll never get over how this affects my kids, my, my, my family, myself, the trust, I'll always feel betrayed. I'll always feel this. I'll always feel like there's a piece of me that like, I just had so many hopes and dreams for what this was supposed to look like, and now life is going to look very different. Accepting the suffering that is involved in the contradiction of reality and setting out towards the promised future. What is that promised future? Again, that death isn't the last word and that what I'm choosing to do with this mess, that it, some of it self-inflicted, some of it other-inflicted, but there's hope for me in spite of it. There's a basis for my hope. It's not pie in the sky ideals. It's a firm belief that what I do with this actually matters. Accepting the suffering, accepting the reality that I may never beat this, whatever it is that I'm I'm struggling with. If you ever watch somebody struggling with addiction, and you have you you, you want to have hope for them, but you've kind of you've learned that. It's not just second chances, the third chances, or twenty-five chances. It just is like, how do I hang on to hope in spite of the fact that I just know it's gonna be broken again? Like I know that, even though he says it's, I'm fine, it's better this time. You just okay, I'm fine, whatever. And on the flip side, him wrestling with this stuff, going, I want to break this, and 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 I. I genuinely do, but I just can't find myself in a way to do this. How do you find hope in that thing? I may never beat this. This struggle might always linger. My marriage may never recover from this. I may carry around with me forever the self-inflicted or other inflicted scars of this tragedy, but that doesn't mean that I can't hope. And what exactly am I hoping for? I'm hoping for a promised future. Not necessarily in the here and the now. I mean, that would be great. And if he, God wants to bless us in that way uh, and free us from that or, or bring in a, a new wife, a new husband, a new something, a new, a new, all kinds of things, he, if it's a long-term disability and all of a sudden like, there's something that comes along, we're like, well, I can do this and I find meaning in this. That's great, awesome. Icing on the cake for me for sure. I'm hoping for a promised future. And what basis do I have to hold onto this hope, especially in light of the contra- contradiction of reality? A God who, according to Paul, has everything under his control already who eventually the day comes when everything's revealed, and God is the God of all nations, not just a nation. He is in control of everything. His sovereignty expands upon people who believe him, who don't believe in him, who you know believe everything against him, believe certain things, wrong things about him. He's still God of all of it, and still in control of all of it. So may we live, then. May we accept the suffering that is involved in the contradiction of reality and set out towards our promised future. I want so badly for you to live with a good sense of greener pastures, but it's not idealistic not like um, on your own personal timeline and in your own personal way. God does not serve you. It's flip-flopped around on that. But for us, accepting the suffering involved in the contradiction of reality and setting out towards our promised future of a God who does have a plan for us, who does love us, and that this life is not all there is to this life and that what you're doing with the mess that you find yourself in actually does matter. May we live with hope.